I am thrilled to announce that An Actor Despairs is partnering with a wonderful CBD company called Kind Farms. Everyone out there has heard of CBD. I started taking it a few years ago when I first started getting sober and to help with my anxiety. Sadly, as one can do, I was overtraining in the gym and a friend recommended a topical and a tincture to help with the pain. I tried it. It was okay. However, recently, I was introduced to a product that has really changed my life. Not only has it helped me with anxiety, but I am stronger than I have ever been. I'm able to carry out lifts my body used to prevent me from doing. Kind Farm products have single-handedly changed my life athletically and personally. They utilize 100% local licensed farmers, organic cultivation, and CO2 extraction for superior CBD. Kind Farms is turning CBD to a kind alternative to pharmaceuticals. Let's transform tobacco row into hemp row. If you want to get involved, please reach out. Together, we can make a difference. You can use my code RYAN10 for 10% off. You can find them on Instagram at Kind Farms Inc., all one word. That's K I N D P H A R M S I N C. And their website is kindfarmsinc.com. Once again, my code for 10% off is Ryan10. And now, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Today on An Actor Despairs, we have an incredible and very serendipitous episode with filmmaker Rod Blackhurst. He did the Amanda Knox documentary, and we're here to talk about his documentary for John Wayne Gacy for Peacock called The Devil in Disguise. It's incredible. You have to watch it. And we have a very crazy connection that we didn't know before we recorded, and he's a true artist. And it's so amazing to hear him talk about it. It got me really fired up. I needed it. I hope you guys need it too. Rod Blackhurst, your family. We're going to go for a round two soon. I love you, brother. Here it is. Rod Blackhurst, welcome to An Actor Despairs. How are you doing, brother? Uh, well, how are you? Man, it's great to have you on, man. I, I, I really love what you did with The Devil in Disguise. Man, it knocks here alone. And I think you're an incredible director, especially like I have – I. I don't want to expose this because I don't want people to look it up, but I'll just say it. I made uh, a few music videos that I directed. So I have so much respect for direct directed. I have so much respect for directors and I love your commercial work. You know, we did for Delta and Uber and, and man, you, you, you have an amazing eye and it's, I think the world's going to see such amazing things from you. And I'm so excited. I have you here to talk about the devil in disguise, but I think we're going to see you fucking take over dude. So thank you for coming. Those are kind words. I, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm doing my best. Like maybe, maybe someday. Uh, and maybe when the, the, the tide rises, all of our ships will, uh, yeah. will lift with it. I, I was already saying off air. I was like, I want to, I want to work with you, man. You know, I really do. You're great. And I have so, I, like, I think short films, you know, man, it's, it, it, I understand why most audiences do the features, but like, I can't tell you most days, I'm rotting away on Vimeo, just going at the staff picks, you know, through the shorts, man. So incredible work, brother. It's a, it's a true pleasure. Well, thank you. I mean, short, short films are, I think, where everybody begins because it's manageable. Like they, you know, it, they can afford them. It's a way to test your skills. Um, and 
you know, it's a way to get things out there to people. And so people can see who you are and what you do. And, um, and so I, I mean, I've, I've made short films for years and years and I still like to do them. It just, you know, sometimes it comes down to whether or not it's worth the time or the money, yeah. you know, because you, you kind of always are doing this cost benefit analysis as a, as an artist and as a human being, whether you're a father, a parent, just, or just trying to navigate the, the thing that you primarily do, you still want to be making art. You still yeah. want to be creating. So the short film format is a way to do that, um, to yeah. scratch that itch, you know? Yeah, man. And, and I see you got some amazing things in, in development. Um, but if it's cool with you, dude, before we dig into the work, let's start at the beginning. You grew up in New York, right? Grew up in the Adirondack Mountains and the gravel road. My parents still live there. They don't have a TV. I grew up without a TV. Um, they barely have cell phone service. And I, and I just, I wanted to make movies. So that here I am. <laughs> so dude, I mean, you, you say that so casually. I mean, we have to break down not growing up with the TV. Did, did you have an awareness of that being a thing? Like, did you go, go, obviously I imagine you went to sleepovers and friends had them. Like, talk to me about that living experience. Dude, exactly. So I was a voracious reader, probably like a lot of people that didn't have a TV. The, really, the, the the no TV was that my father just like kind of uh, didn't <laughs> didn't love the world, so they lived in the middle of nowhere. Um, and uh, but there was no antenna, there was no TV antenna service to be had, and there was no cable to be run. I mean, you're yeah. talking about dirt roads in the middle of nowhere. But I knew that movies exist, of course, and like, and I would any chance I could, I would watch movies. Um, and like, I would go to, uh, friends' houses. I would readily accept sleepover invitations or like hangouts just so I could watch movies. But my friends were also watching, you know, kind of the most mainstream of mainstream things. Um, but I do remember, um, man, this is like, I, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but like I went to my friend Billy Moose's house. Um, and we watched like Jean-Claude Van Damme and Steven Seagal movies. And I thought it was the greatest thing on the planet. But also before we watched those, I remember watching Full Metal Jacket and RoboCop and, and being emotionally devastated because I thought that maybe these were approximations of real stories. But like, I, I thought that maybe that they were, RoboCop was the retelling of a story of a man who'd been uh, changed into part robot who would never yeah. be human again. Or I thought in, you know, Full Metal Jacket that somebody had legitimately blown their head off in the bathroom and that this film was just telling me this experience. And I didn't, I, I remember like the line being very blurry between what what was actual information and what was fictional storytelling. And I just, and, and I, it messed me up for a while. I mean, I had nightmares for, because of both of those homes for a long time. Just because like the components of realism and naturalism, you didn't understand the medium fully? Cause I mean, you, I, yeah, I guess I, yeah. and it sounds crazy to say it out loud, but like, yeah, I guess I thought that like, I knew they weren't documentaries. I knew they weren't news programs, but I still thought that maybe movies were, uh, were events, were, were things about events that had happened uh, for real. Yeah. And like, I mean, I remember my father taking me to see uh, Memphis Bell in this small town theater that, you know, would show one movie per week on one screen and you would, you could just go see what they had. And he loved World War II movies and like Antarctica exploration movies. But Memphis Bell was a very real story about, um, you know, people navigating something that happened in World War II. And like, so I think that might have colored the way I saw movies for a while. But we had a movie. Uh, we had a movie rental store in town that was in the back of the jewelry store. So the jeweler in town um, also happened to be my school bus driver, 
No way. What a hustler. (laughs) Oh, dude, straight up. But the the best part about him was his name was Pete Parker. And like, I remember coming to Spider-Man around this time thinking like, thinking like in the Venn diagram of experiences, there's no possible way that my school bus driver who is the jeweler who has the movie rental store store. I mean, it's like an area in the back of his jewelry store is also Spider-Man. I remember like distinctly being blown away. That's so rad. I would be too, man. Pete Parker was my guy when I was growing up as well. So you, 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 that you kind of brought me to my next question. You mentioned there was a small, you know, town cinema. Did, did you go there ever? Were your parents like, I guess I'm trying, were they against you watching television? Uh, I, I mean, I think like, yeah, I mean, I think they would have, I don't know. I, this is a great question. Like, I don't think it was a, I don't think they were saying don't watch movies, don't engage with the medium. It was more like, Hey, there's all these other wonderful things out there. Um, yeah. And so it, you know, it bothered me to the extent that I would have to lie to everybody in school to say, yes, I'd watch Dawson's Creek last night because, <laughs> well, I wanted to fit yeah, in, you know? Totally, yeah. So like, I would just like, I'd be like, yeah, like, you know, when Josh Dawson Jackson, does, the best. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I would just like fake my way through all those conversations. Cause like, I, I didn't watch a single, I've never, to this day, I've never seen a single episode of uh, of like any of those TV series from the nineties, like uh, like all those seminal series, like my so called Boy Life, Meets World, yeah, Boy Meets World, yeah. um, Dawson's Creek. I I've never watched an episode because by time I had access to a TV in college, I wasn't going to go back and revisit those things. I was yeah. going to watch the things. And that Apple TV to me. didn't exist then. I mean, you you it would be no. so hard to you know. Yes, I mean, I would have had to bought the the VHS tapes, a box yeah. set, you know. Yeah, <laughs> so. hundreds of dollars worth, you know, maybe yeah. thousands. <laughs> That's so funny, dude. So yeah. then, I mean, I'm. Uh, you mentioned you you were a big reader, you know. Talk to me just uh, about your relation to art. You know, where did the where do you feel like the inclination became? You said you obviously the medium became filmmaking, but when you, did you get the artistry bug? This is a great question. I think um, I I was, man, I was always a performer. I played music. I was in musical theater. Um, I was in show choir. I, you know, I wanted to, I, I wanted to, to create endlessly because for me, I love two, two parts of the like creative process. The first was the, the coming together of two separate people and the elevation of an idea. And that yeah. happened in, in of course, musical performance. It happened in theatrical performance. It happened in, um, and, and it happens on set, right? Like, which is um, one of the things that I, like, I, I need it like a drug. The, you, the, the, the discovery of something and then the making of the, how two people make something better. One yeah. plus one equals three, not yeah. two in that case. Um, and the second thing I loved about creating was uh, sharing work with people so that it could affect the way they thought about something or, or getting real-time feedback. Yeah. Um, and I did everything I could to, to be a, to, to do that, you know, even, you know, through high school and middle school, again, I, I started taking photographs. I, you know, I would just do anything I could to, to create and to tell stories. And largely there were stories that as I started to figure out my own voice that were just about like deeply personal things or trying to find a way to contextualize an emotion or a thought on something and then make somebody else understand it through the process of creating it. Um, And so I, I, you know, I initially wanted to make music videos and actually my freshman, I I went to the best college I could could get into. um, 
and I just uh, what, started. Did you have an things. idea of what what yeah, I mean, major I, declared? I did, or? It's a great question. Like I, I mean, yes. Like I, I, I ended up majoring in French literature, um, but I remember like. You know, I want. I told my parents the the my during my freshman year that I thought I'd gone to the wrong school. No offense to Colgate, um, but that was just because I felt like I needed to create more, and there just wasn't that community yeah. there, kind of broadly. Um, and I remember saying to my parents, like, I wish I'd gone to NYU. Yeah, um, that's and, where I went. <laughs> uh, and I know, and I know this actually. Like, this is, a, and I'm not going to get us off track here, but I do have this. I do want to know: Were you in the graduate program or the undergraduate program? I was in the undergraduate program. The, okay. I, I I have auditioned for the grad acting program. I've gotten called back, but they take about twelve actors of about yeah. anywhere from three to four thousand on a given year. So so I I went through the graduate uh, school like the Tisch grad school process in like uh, two thousand six. Yeah, and I didn't get, and I didn't get in. Um, I went through the interview process. I got I got called in, and it's like, and and I've always wondered like. And, 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 I, and I had a very like contentious relationship with that experience. Yeah. Um, and the three, the three people that I sat across this table from and what I was saying and what they were telling me, I didn't know. And, and, and like, and it really made me mad for a long time. And I, but I've often like if, wondered if you don't mind sharing, I, I have a contentious relationship yeah. with NYU. Does, there's some really great things that came out of it, but there's some horrible things, including the money. If, if you, I mean, I don't want to, spill names but if you don't mind like talking about it i'm, I'm very sure. curious yeah. what what, well, what so happened is, so okay yeah so in 2006 like i was um you know i i was trying to i'd been out of college at that point for about four years uh, so i graduated in 02 from colgate and in 06 i thought well i had been making ski movies actually in northern california action sports films um yeah. like i went to the x games i kind of managed a a team of uh free skiers i traveled around europe a bunch like because ski we're talking canon so- xl2 days like what what, what do dude, we d- yeah dude, yeah xl1 xl2 yeah. dvx100 totally. into into like panasonic p2 cards and stuff yeah. like this like I, but like the so after college i wanted to work in film um I had done everything I could in college to to do that. Like I, you know, I. I they had I, no like, film classes there, right? You like at they, NYU, they, you can take a class on Stanley Kubrick and The Wire, and most I know most schools don't offer that. So they had a film, a class my senior, like about Italian cinema. I took that, and they had two like what were called like video production classes, or like maybe they were called like motion picture class. I'm not I'm not quite sure, but. I can't, I can't remember the specific name. I did everything I could. Um, but really, like, I, I didn't know anybody who worked in the film industry. My mother was a public school teacher. My dad was a carpenter and a woodworker, you know, kind of a, a small town jack of all trades. They, I didn't have any family connections to rely on. And so as, as we all know, I, nepotism is, is a real avenue in this oh, in this business for any sector, you know. So, so I had no way yeah. in and the old, so I found myself in Northern California after I graduated and there was, I knew that there was this guy in this town where I was living in Lake Tahoe who, who was from upstate New York and he made ski films. So I literally cold outreached and I was like, I want to make ski films too. His name is Scott Gaffney. Um, and I just, he, I, I just, uh, got a nice note from him the other day about devil in disguise. Um, and it, like, it was the door that I could open. So I walked through it and I made ski films um, to both do what I do, try, you know, try to get better, try to learn and grow and to meet people. And, and, and after a couple of years of that, so maybe four years, I realized that that wasn't 
that wasn't satisfying the storyteller inside of yeah. me. So I thought, I'll, I'll go to graduate school. Yeah. Um, and I made it into the interview round at uh, the graduate program at NYU. And I went in for this interview and I proceeded to have these three professors, both, or I, I think maybe one of them was the dean. I actually don't remember any of their names. Um, but like, basically like tell me that I didn't know what I was talking about and they put me on the spot in a very uncomfortable way. And I've, and I've, and I've thought about it endlessly because I wanted to go to school to buy access to the network of people into the yeah. industry. I mean, that's I, what you're paying for. Totally. You know, I knew I had the skill set and I knew I had the desire, but I didn't know anybody. So I yeah. was willing to take on that debt merely to meet people and all, you know, I didn't get accepted. Um, well, and fuck that. They wondered. made a huge mistake. Yeah. I love the quote. I, I love the quote you have on your website. You know, every, everyone's going to say that how they met you when you, when you make it, you know, that those that told you that you couldn't. Well, dude, everybody has said that, you know, yeah. that, that's the same for everybody. Like, no, everyone wants to stand in the way until you do the thing that you said you were going to do. And then they, they line up to tell you that it's good. Or I they, always or believed like, in you. I, I knew, you know, yeah. Well, yeah phony bullshit. Yeah. I, I mean, and that's just, that's, that's incredible to me. So I've always like wondered though, who graduated in 09, who would have been in my class, whether or not there are any peers out there from that NYU graduate directing program. And I've just never been able to find out. So when I saw that you had gone to NYU, I yeah. thought, well, shoot, I'm going to ask Ryan. Um, yeah. There was a few then. I, I, I mean, that I'm trying to think of uh, the, the woman who directed Birds of Prey uh forgive me for not remembering her name okay. um uh, uh there's been a couple others todd no todd was already a thing from undergrad um there there are a few man i but it, it's it's been an interesting thing too because you know as someone who went to nyu and and also even thought about going to grad school there there's so many that just get stuck in in, in not doing it and it's the people like you who don't wait for an institution or a corridor of, you know, connections that just make it happen that do the best. You know what I mean? Like the ones that even did rely on the institution still didn't get any help. You know, like I, I went to NYU as an actor and I'm still auditioning and they didn't help me get an agent. They didn't help me get a manager and they didn't help me do a podcast. So I, 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 I love that you, if you don't mind me asking, you know, what, what buoyed you? Did that in inadvertently, despite the trauma of like having that experience, would you say that lit a fire under you? It, yes, it did. Um, I think that like, I mean, I, I, this, that's a great question. Like, um, because it was, I, I think like all artists have this, this like endless, you need to have this endless self-belief that like, that you can and that you will. And, and then that you're going and that you hope that the work you do speaks to those capabilities that, and so for me, like, I, I mean, it's that and it's burning, it's a burning desire to create and a yeah. burning desire to make things. And it's something that I can't, so I have a hard time articulating to people that are not creatively minded or don't feel that call because it's something I, no one has given it to me. No one has reminded me of it. Nobody like, yeah, that buoy or that tether is not connected to anything other than just an idea yeah. that I can and that I have, and so therefore I will continue to try. Um, and that's both like maddening and beautiful at the same time. It's all, it's the curse of, or it's sorry, it's the source of like great stress and great joy. Yeah. Um, that like that need and that desire that you that we all keep chasing, yourself included. Yeah, 
And then I'm curious, you know, dealing with that, you know, when you were in Northern California and you're doing these skate films and you become like, okay, this isn't going to be the thing that gets me to where I want to go. And you applied to NYU. Was there, you know, a, a binary LA, New York decision that had to be made? So, so dude, I'm going to back up even a little bit. Like, so coming out of Colgate, like I had, I, uh, design theater sets. That was the way in college for me to scratch the itch, um, of the, like the creation of things of worlds, right. To me, it was world building. And, um, my senior year at Colgate, there was this famed, uh, theater director at Colgate named Jacques Levy and Jacques has since passed away, but Jacques was, um, he was a professor at Colgate, but he was also like an incredible figure in the theater world. He had actually given Sam Shepard his start in the East Village. And Jacques went on to write Fame and Oak, Oak Calcutta. And he wrote Bob Dylan's The Hurricane. And like, wow. and, but, but Jacques Levy literally like found a play that Sam Shepard had written. And like, I think was maybe one of the first people to put on one of Sam's plays. Anyway, Jacques realized the set that I had designed for a university production of Arthur Miller's All My Sons. Um, and I, I was, I was good at this. Like I was good at, I was good at designing. I was good at world building. And so coming out of Colgate, I had been given two opportunities. I, I had applied and gotten an internship at Village Roadshow Pictures in LA through a Colgate alum. Um, this was 2002. And I'd been given an internship at the Denver Center Theater Company in their set design program. Wow. And I loaded up my Subaru. I started driving west from New York, from upstate New York. I get to Denver to check. I've never been, you know, west of the Mississippi. I get to Denver um, and I arrive on a Saturday and I scout downtown Denver where the Denver Center Theater Company is, which is like at the time was at least one of the largest uh, independent theater companies in the country. And I decided that I didn't like Denver. Yeah. And so I literally never called them and I just drove to Northern California and I was planning on, so I double booked myself, right? Like at at the Denver Center Theater Company and Village Roadshow. You said yes to both. I said yes to both. And then, so, so then I get to Northern California and the only reason I'm going that way is because I kind of just went straight across and I get to Northern California and my friend's living out at the back of his car in this park. And he's like, dude, we should get a place together. Um, And I was like, yeah, all my stuff is in my car. Sure. This sounds great. And I never went to <laughs> LA and I never no called way. Village Roadshow and said I wasn't covering. But the, the issue with Village Roadshow and with the Denver Center Theater Company internship is that they were both unpaid internships. Yeah. And I couldn't afford to work and do script coverage at Village Roadshow, which is what I was told the job would be. I didn't even know what that was, but I yeah. just knew it was a studio who made movies that I loved. And it was something that I could maybe use as a way into the larger industry. But I never showed up to either and I never called them and there I ended up making ski movies. So now I think I need to go back. I need to get back on track. And and ultimately um, when I didn't get into NYU at the same time, I went in for that job or that, that NYU grad school interview, I had an old friend who called me and said, Hey, we have this band that uh, is going on the road. They're, you know, they're, they're gaining some steam and some traction with the song that they've just released. Um, my, my friend Mark was in music management, still is. Um, to, it was still one of my best friends. 22 years later, he manages Brandy Carlisle. Now, oh, wow. He's like, but he calls me and says, hey, we have this band no one's heard of called The Fray. 
They need a guy to go on the road and sell T-shirts with them. Um, will you? I was the merch guy for a band. No way, dude. I, dude, I, the, the the cotton tech, like they called me the cotton tech, or like you know, like I slung I slung T-shirts, dude. I because it was a door that was open, right? So I thought. So, but Mark says this. Mark says this. Or actually, Mark and his and um, his boss at the time, who ran this record label and music uh, uh, product or music management company, said, "Hey, three weeks, three weeks on the road." Um, you can sell t-shirt. They need somebody to sell t-shirts, but you can bring your video camera and maybe you can make something that the record label will buy. And that's all I heard. I was like, I was like, I will do, I will sell a a million t-shirts if it means that I can practice my craft and and the thing that I love. Yeah. That's amazing. And I I went on the road. (laughs) And did the single take off while you were on that road? Yeah. So dude, that, that three week tour, in the spring of 2016, when I'd gone in for this interview, by the time that three-week tour was over, I'd heard from NYU that I didn't get in. So that three-week tour turned into working with the pop rock band, The Fray, for four years. Um, dude, I, I worked for Jack's Mannequin. They toured with them. Dude, I, I, dude, I still talk to Andrew McMahon. He's one of my best friends. This, dude, I, I shot a Jack. I, I met him I since shot, I was 14. <laughs> Dude, I shot uh, a Jack's Manic a, a music video called Choke California. Yeah, um, no way, dude. dude. Andrew, Andrew's like <laughs> one of my oldest friends, man. I, I was their merch guy. So, dude, were you on the tour that they did with the Fred? No, that was before my time. I was still I was still finishing NYU then. But I was on tour. I was at I was at like the Santa Barbara show. I was at a bunch of them, man. That was like, dude, I, I, man, this is so funny. Like, dude, I. This is uh, first of all, like I'm I'm rattled in a beautiful way right now. But like this is how the world works. I know, dude, I dude. Not only did I do the tour, but like I then my friend James Minchin and I made this music video for Andrew that was for I can't remember the album. It was like uh, and it was a beautiful thing. We went out to the desert. We rented this old picture car, and yeah. Andrew dragged a piano. He had a broken foot at the time, and he dragged a piano out into the into the, the Mojave desert and played it as the sun went down. And it was this rumination about like a memory that he had had. And he yeah. was telling the story while we like had this journey out to the middle of nowhere. This is, this is a beautiful thing. One, I'm going to write Andrew when this is all done. And two, you need to write him as well because yeah. it's going to blow his mind. <laughs> yeah, dude. I mean, it's so funny you say that. I, dude, I've known him since I was 14 years old. I'm 31 now, you know, he's like one of those few people I've known longer than I haven't known. And, uh, I was like supposed to do the same video thing for him. That's so funny, man. This whole yeah. world's so small. It is. And I think like, but the, the thing that I like, I love about this is that like, you just do the, you do the things you, you pursue things because you, you like it and you love it and you're, and you're like, and you know, you can do a good job at it and you just see where that takes you. It's like unraveling a, th- like pulling a thread off a sweater. Like yeah. you just keep pulling. And so, I love we have the with, same path, you know? It's so funny, well, dude. dude. And like, I think the thing that you're speaking to is like something I try to tell everybody. And I, I everybody I talk to about my my process or my life and, and my creative existence is like, but it, it there is no route to, to accomplishing something. Like you, you are, you know, of course, the sum of all of your experiences and your, um, and the things you've learned. But like, the people who are dying to create do whatever it takes. They, yeah. they, they find a way and it's, and you do what you can, you know, and, and you keep in this endless self-belief and that, you, that 
you will eventually be able to do what you want to do and what you're good at. That's, yeah. That you that you your opportunities will lead to other opportunities that you will grow. You will get better and better. Things don't fall into the gap. Like you, your, your stuff doesn't suck anymore and you, you get better and you're more proud of it. And then eventually like it, it is the thing that you're able to do for the rest of your life. And I think like if it, if it starts with you being on the road selling t-shirts and making band documentaries for MySpace or YouTube, so be it. Like, and that was me thing. finding my voice as an actor. It was selling merch to strangers on the road. You know what I mean? Like, so interesting, dude. I fucking love this, Rod. This is I did that, dude. I did that. I, like, dude, I sold t-shirts, man. Yeah. Like, I mean, dude, I like it. Like those four years with the fray were like so informative and so beautiful because it, it just, it was like Alice falling through the looking glass. Like I didn't know what I was doing or where I was yeah. going. I just, I just held on. Yeah. And, and, and I think like my life and career thus far has just been that like, Hey, I'm going to get on this bull and I'm going to ride and I'm going to ride. I'm going to just keep riding and I'm going to get back up. You know? Yeah. That's so beautiful, man. <laughs> Dude, I could talk to you for hours. I feel bad. Your publicist is probably like, get to the project. We can talk. Dude, I think that like, I was like, I, you know, I went and listened to um, some of your other episodes and I don't know if other people do this before they meet you or talk to you. And like, I like, I think that the thing about wh what I was looking forward to is just this this part of it that like, it's just, there's this, uh, you know, you have two people that do overlap in the yeah. fact that you're creators, you work in film. Yeah. And, um, and I just like having these sorts of conversations is, uh, puts water in my tank. Like, yeah. because it, rem it, it, there's an energy and an enthusiasm to it. That is uh, that you, that, you know, you don't get in a lot of relationships, but uh, talking to another creative who yeah. understands that. Yeah. And even if they're doing something different inside the creative space, you still can like, again, you're tapping into this energy and then it's filling us up. Like, dude, yeah. we're, we're fired I know. up right now. <laughs> we're like, <soaked. laughs> it's, it's amazing. Uh, therapy granted, brother. Free on me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. An actor despairs. Now bringing you therapy, but that's amazing. Yeah, exactly. uh, dude. So, uh, so then to, to summarize that, I imagine, did one of those videos get picked up by the label? I mean, yes, dude. So like, so yeah, so uh, the, 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 the fray was on Epic Records slash Sony. I got, you know, they bought a documentary. They bought, I directed a music video. I got- I, For I the just, band? Um, for the band, the fray, yeah. um, meaning the, the things happened, you know? And like, and I worked my tail off. And I, you know, I decided, um, in 2009, like I did a, a final summer tour. I was running the, uh, the band's, uh, like live amphitheater show. So they, it, I was way in over my head, but again, the band just at that point, we were very close friends and creative collaborators. And, um, they were just like, Hey Rod, can you do this thing? And I was like, well, I've never done that before. I, I have no idea yeah. how to like, to lot to live switch these like cameras and to like design the stage show. But Sure. Like yeah. I'll do it because you're, you're saying, Rod here, the door is opening. Will you just walk through it? So I was like, yeah, sure. So I did this. And then at the time I'd met this incredible um, woman named Rachel and she, I remember she asking me, um, Hey, don't you want to be making movies? And I was like, Oh, right. Like I do. Let's move from Denver to Los Angeles. And she was like, okay, uh, I'll, I'll come with you. And so in 2010, I, I, you know, I, I got out of the music world and 
I moved to LA to try to start making movies. Yeah. Um, f- like officially, like after eight years of like wandering around. Dude, I, like, I did, did the same thing I could. through my 20s, man. I did this. I, I, I'm sober five years coming up, but like, Congrats, I, man. I went that's on tour thing. with bands and did the merch thing and wasn't acting. And that's what we have to do, brother. I mean, it makes us such better artists, you know? Dude, I, I, I firmly believe it. And like, I, all those things, make it like add up like and you just don't know the way that it will add up or what it will inform and i think that like none of and i've tried really hard in my life to not disregard any person and or endeavor or opportunity because you just don't know i've met some of the best fucking people along the way outside of the film industry who are like you know i i feel just such joy to know because they aren't in the because because we've just we, we were we came to each other through odd ways. And isn't that the way life is supposed to work? Yeah. And you just, and you don't know what it all adds up to and that's okay. And totally. like, you just have to be open to it. And like, and if you're a good person and do your best, it will mean something because yeah. it you define that. And like, I'm so, I'm so stoked to just have this conversation. I feel like I'm so off track and it's no, not No, it's all, all good, man. Well, 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 let me, so then, so you get to LA, right? And yeah. what's what's Rod's steps? Do it? Did you have shorts written? Did you have you know? Did, um, you had money saved, I imagine, obviously. But like, what were what was your steps? So there were two th- things that I started doing. Like a, a friend of the singer of the, the lead singer of the Fray was a guy is a guy named Isaac Slade, still a very dear friend. He before the Fray happened, he worked at a Starbucks in in Denver, and he worked his shift with a, a filmmaker named Kelly McGelkey mm-hmm. and Kelly's they're, they're still deep friends or, or dear friends. And they're still very much friends. Um, Kelly introduced me to a friend of his from his hometown in Dickinson, North Dakota, who was an aspiring screenwriter named Dave Ebeltoff. They grew up together in the nineties, yeah. you know, riding skateboards and watching Jean-Claude Van Damme movies, you know, and like, and um, staying up late, you know, being kids. And, Kelly introduced, so the singer of the fray introduces me to his friend that he works, he used to work at Starbucks with, who introduces me to his friend, David. Yeah. And David's got this movie, this script that I love. And I'm like, dude, we're going to make your movie. We're going to, we're going to like, this is, this is what we need to be doing. And he'd been looking for a filmmaker. Um, We've never been able to make the movie. We probably never will be able to make the movie, but. Was that the one that you were talking about Palmer? The one that you thought you had. No, this was called, you were once called Queen Ah. City. It was like, it was a coming of age story in a small town in North Dakota in the nineties. But Dave and I um, became thick as thieves and he wrote here alone, the first fiction film that I directed and were Tribeca audience award winner. Humble brag. Hashtag. (laughs) (laughs) I gotta Um, say it's not you. (laughs) And so, and and we're still making, uh, you know, we're trying to make several movies together right now, you know, move like we have a movie called, um, Blood for Dust that uh, that Scoot McNary is attached to play the lead Love on, Scoot and we're about McNary. to make. Let an me know offer. if you need an actor. <laughs> I hundred percent will. Yeah, I like, but I, I tell you the story because like I I I had an experience a couple of years ago when um, my friend and I wrote a movie that we sold to Amblin, and um, this was uh, I'm trying to think like the week before Christmas in 2019, yeah. and I get this phone call on a Monday night um, from. Uh, my producing partners who are like, Hey, listen, Amblin is going to make an offer in the time span of three or four days. And they're going to, they love, 
you know, they love this movie and, and they want to make this movie. And, um, you know, I, I like, I, you know, I cried and I couldn't believe it. And, and, but the next thing I did was I made a list of all of the people that I'd met in my life that had led me to that moment, who, if yeah. I hadn't met them, I wouldn't be at that juncture. Yeah. And I called every single one of them and said, like, you have, like, if you hadn't done what you'd done or given me the opportunity you'd given me, I wouldn't be here. And like, I need to, I need to tell you how much like that matters that you took a chance on me, that you introduced me to someone else. I mean, and Dave Ebeltoff is a part of this. So my friend Dave, who's a screenwriter, I wouldn't have met him if I never worked for the fray and I never would have worked for the fray. If not in the, in the fall of 1998, when I was a college freshman, I saw this record label online who made, music uh who who represented bands and had were distributing albums of bands that i loved and they had a a phone number on their website and i called the number and i was like you don't know who i am i'm 17 18 i want to play your music on my college radio station and i want to book your bands at my college and none of this would have been possible if i didn't made that single call in 1998 and i think i think about this so often that you just don't know where shit leads or what it adds up to so pursue it all like and be a good person and like be fired up because and, and be honest and think something will come from it because yeah. you you're I, I, that's just the way life works so i'm, I'm telling you the story because like i'm sitting here thinking like I, I'm, there's an impossible set of coincidences that are even happening on yeah, this podcast. Yeah, I got to do this today. podcast like, with this guy today. It's going to be whatever. And then, oh my God. <laughs> well, dude, so I don't drive your uh, the team ad. So to summarize, you have this amazing film. You do some things with Dave Franco on Funny or Die. And you have some awesome shorts, which I imagine get you, you know, traction in the narrative world. While also doing documentaries, you know, was that something... But let's let's talk about the documentary medium since that's in the wheelhouse of what we're here to talk about. Sure. As you did these shorts and and the funnier die and you know was was the specific style of documentary was that something you've always been in? I mean, obviously you're on tour with the band, so it makes sense. But yeah, I think for me, there I've always said I'm genre agnostic. So like for me, it's about the story that's in front of me and whether or not I know how to tell it and whether or not I know how to tell it in a way that can be understood by others. So, um, and and that's, that's true for fiction and nonfiction. Um, you know, like the, the funnier die short films that I was directing, um, with Dave Franco and Chris Mintz-Plass, uh, I I loved making those because I love the people. I love like the, how hard we laughed while creating them. Yeah. I love the way that it made people cringe and the joy that it brought to others. So, and I knew that I was good at it. Like I knew how to tell the, those stories. So I did. Yeah. And the same is true in doc, the documentary space. Um, if, and, and, and there's still a component like uh, of this where it's like, it also needs to be something that I want to say or that I want to see exist in the world. Now yeah. the Dave Franco shorts and the Christmas, the things that we were doing with Dave and Chris, um, you know, they, they aren't going to like change culture or like, yeah. add, or like, um, or tell us something larger about the way we work as people or the, or the way like people are, but they were a way to, uh, learn and grow and to, uh, again, put my director hat on, put my filmmaker hat on. Um, but I always said that like, I, I, I love documentaries in equal measure. And if there was a great documentary story to tell, then I would, um, 
And so I, you know, of course I felt, I kind of fell into the, uh, into making the Amanda Knox documentary. I was, you know, offered an introduction to her and I took it um, while she was still in prison. Um, and I've just always been captivated by the form, um, by the, the authenticity of it. And I think a lot of the, um, a lot of authenticity and the, and the fact that fiction is, or, you know, sorry, fact is often stranger than fiction yeah. that great documentaries allow you to understand something that is, is so different than if it had been written because it is real and these people are real and the things you were seeing are real. And that to me has, uh, has power and strength. Um, yeah. And I've always been an empath um, and like, and I feel like I connect really well with people, which is yeah. certainly something that I do in my commercial work. I do a lot totally. of real people commercials um, because I care about people. I'm the guy that will sit opposite someone in an interview and cry. Yeah. Like, and I will cry harder than they will because I, I care about all people and uh, even people I disagree with. Like I, like I care about the human experience and the condition. So document, and I, this is such a messy, like emotional way of talking about this. I'd even, I'd even prepare myself to articulate any of this, but um, that's, that's why I make documentaries because it's a way to tell someone's story and to have them be seen and heard. And that's really what I want too, you know, yeah. as an artist and a filmmaker. So I, I, it, it brings me joy to be able to do that, to, to, to bring someone else's experience and life into the light. And you've really succeeded at that, man. You're, you're a true master and it's so beautiful the way you put that. So, you know, obviously you got to come back clearly, but so let's talk about what we're meant to talk about. The devil in disguise, John Wayne Gacy docu for Peacock now, now streaming, right? Mm -hmm. Now streaming on Peacock. It's out. Yep. So talk to me, how did this come your way? Obviously I, sure. did you, you know, growing up in New York, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, I was a weird kid maybe, but I had like a weird fascination with serial killers. So I, I knew who John Wayne Gacy was for a long time, you know, like Ed Gein, Dahmer, those guys, you know, like, did you know who he was? Man, this, the, so Ed, the fact that you mentioned Ed Gein's name, that's crazy. Like he's like the, 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 uh, the OG OG I mean, before Jack the Ripper, <laughs> it's really Gein that, that kind yeah. of modernized serial killing. And I apologize for everyone that's going to cancel me for saying that. <laughs> Please no, don't. No, 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 yeah. no, 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 nobody deserves to be canceled. Um, uh, Gein is a, a fascinating story in and of itself. Don't, won't go into it, but like, um, I did know a little bit about who John Wayne Gacy was merely because I loved pop culture. In lieu of a TV, I consumed, uh, like I read and it was music. And the band, Marilyn Manson, um, had somebody in their band who had adopted the, mon the Gacy moniker. Um, I think everybody in Marilyn Manson's band Speaking had to have of like... <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. I, and I only I only mentioned this yeah. because it was the it was the first time I heard of Gacy yeah. that like Marilyn and Manson was an amalgamation of uh you know a, star, a Hollywood starlet and a yeah. serial killer. And I think every member of his group back in the 90s did that. had to did that. Yeah. So because I listened to all music and I, I love music and um I, I just I knew I had read about Gacy maybe back in the nineties, probably in an encyclopedia in my high school library before yeah. the internet existed. Um, and uh, all this to say, um, I knew a little bit about Gacy. I knew what he had done, but the story came to me because um, one of these two independent journalists from Chicago 
uh, Tracy Ullman had spent at that the point. The one who's in uh, the interview or the, in, the, in, the, in the piece, right? Her her partner, Allison True, is in oh, the Oh, Allison yes. True. So, got yep. it. Got it. Okay. Yep. So Allison was the former editor of the Chicago Reader. And Tracy Ullman was a Chicagoland journalist slash uh, independent producer. And they had had a tip fall into their laps um, at this point, 10 years ago. And it, it was a story about a, a property in Chicago where a former cop felt like based on a large number of experiences and impossible to explain coincidences that more people might be buried there and that yeah. the police had done everything they could to not investigate it thoroughly. Yeah. And Allison and Tracy get this tip and they, they end up spending 10 years of their life trying to unpack this because nobody else would. Yeah. But the reason why I get this call is Tracy had seen um, my documentary about Amanda Knox and she thought I would be a good fit. Yeah. It was literally in, in our business, it was an incoming call, right? Yeah. So you take that call, you, you initially take that call. And I've told her this, so like I have a problem saying it out loud here either, that like you take that call because that's the right thing to do. Those totally. people cared enough about me as an, as an artist and as a filmmaker and a storyteller, and they think I would be a good fit. You always say yes. And then they instantly tell me that this story is about making sure that a record is, is, is recorded accurately, that there were people in charge then and still now yeah. who um, are responding to this in a very specific and odd way. Yeah. And that there are questions that need to be asked because there are answers that probably exist out there. It's just going to take somebody asking those questions very loudly to get to the bottom of things. So yeah. um, after Amanda Knox, I had foregone making documentaries and focused on my fiction work yeah. by and large. Also, documentaries were um, things were turning into content. They were transactional in the sense that they really didn't have something larger to add to conversation or culture yeah. or history. And I thought, I, you know, I'm just I'm not interested in making content like I'm, I'm a filmmaker. Yeah, you um, want to make impact. I, I, and I want to make something that yeah. adds up and that yeah. like and says something. Um, and so but this was too important to not say yes to and yeah. to help bring to life. So I had to, and I thought, well, I know how to tell this story. I know that this is important. And I think that like, it makes a contribution to the world. So I'm going to do this. That's amazing, man. And I'm curious because, you know, for all the documentarians listening out there or aspiring ones more so, or, or filmmakers or whoever, um, you know, the thing about documentaries that are so tricky is that they can become money pits. So in order for you to invest in this emotionally, physically, financially, artistically, you know, you really had to believe in this. So was it when you got that call, was it the threat of this, this thing that has not been explored about Gacy and the other possible victims that were, you know, I mean, kind of almost specifically marginalized and pushed away by the Cook County and the Chicago police department. Was that what you saw? That, that's exactly what I saw. I saw two things, right? I saw this like set of victims that had had their victimhood taken away. They'd been yeah. reduced to second-class citizens. Um, and more specifically though, that Gacy had had uh, a history and had was on many people's radar going back to like a previous arrest and conviction in Iowa. And then had ingratiated himself into the Chicago social and political scene um, 
and had gone unchecked for many years. A lot of people were so saying, crazy. were like, were going to the police, talking about him, reporting assaults. Um, individuals were disregarded, and a lot of this is in the show. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to spoil it for people who do want to discover it. But I mean, there was that component to it, and then there was this, um, you know, this impossible set of circumstances that. When you, if you were to put them all on a tableau, and I'm not, again, I don't want to spoil the series for somebody who goes to watch it, but um, th- there, there are t- how many coincidences are too many yeah. for there not to be something bigger there, and that was very clear in the research that Allison True and Tracy Ullman had done, yeah. and I think for me, th- they were two people that that followed a compass heading. They were like they had this story or this thing had landed in their lap and they thought, oh my gosh, somebody has to do something, right? Like somebody has to make sure that this is known and seen. And they spent, at that point that I came to the project, eight years of their private lives and time researching this because they felt like if nobody else would, then then they needed to. Yeah. And, um, and so I was, you know, I, I would be lying if I didn't say that I was the benefit of that, those many years of research and and like, and investigative journalism. And the, the series is as good as it is because of the work that they did to get it there. Yeah. And I also saw in them two independent storytellers who needed to be supported. They believed in themselves endlessly when nobody else would. And that has been my experience in my journey. So I thought, yeah. not only do they have an important story that needs to be told, and I and I care about this story, and I think I can tell it, but they are also people uh, worth supporting in the process. Yeah. Um, and that is very much a part of why I do things. It's not always just about the material. It's about the, you know, the tribe behind that material and the, the, the you know, trying to put good things and good people out into the world. And uh, in, with my time and energy, be deliberate and do just that. Yeah, that's amazing, man. And I'm so curious because you know, with, with documentaries, you did this obviously with the Amanda Knox, there, there's an immense degree of trust that's required on part of the filmmaker and getting, you know, I don't, I'm not spoiling things, but his John Wayne Gacy's sister and many of the victims, families or, or family members that are still alive or adjacent, you know, what was that like, you know, let alone the, the red tape of, you know, having to deal with an issue where a specific police department doesn't want it touched, you know, like, how do you navigate all of this? I, I, do, I can't describe how, how it happened. I, I, I can tell you what I do, but I, I almost don't know. It's, it's, there's definitely an, an innate, an innate uh, skill set that I think that it, it, I, I can't teach it to people. I, I can't tell them what my process is. Um, other than just sitting across from somebody and opening myself up to them and being honest and forthcoming and asking the same in return um, and and being willing to be present and, and to consider their position and to consider their version of events. Yeah. That doesn't mean that those, that those events are true, but trying to afford everybody the chance to be heard based on what they think is true or what they're, the truth of their experience and the truth of the way they see something. Um, because facts are facts, but I, I, I th- think I, I operate differently when I'm sitting across from somebody 
talking to them and listening and, um, and trying to understand what it is they need to say or want to say about something. And that, that's just the skill set that I feel like I've been gifted. And I, I don't even, again, I don't even know how to talk about it because yeah. I, I just, it's well, you, I obviously can't, I can't everyone listening, you have to watch it and, and that, that'll be a good way to, to segue into it. But, but it's incredible, brother. It's such a, an amazing piece of work. And, you know, I, I, I have to ask, you know, I mean, I, from, from, you know, that phone call to turn around, what is something like this take commitment wise? Yeah. So at the time, so when, when, uh, when Tracy Ullman reached out to me, it, NBC had, um, had already acquired the, you know, the, the research and the investigation that they had done yeah. and they wanted to make a docu-series out of this. Um, and they needed a filmmaker. Um, and so I, again, I, I said yes, because I, I wanted to, I wanted to advocate on behalf of the work that they had done and the story that they had discovered. And I also felt like it was a good use of my time creatively and, and, um, and emotionally. Yeah. Um, so we had, we had the uh, the grace of being associated with with Peacock and NBC Studios, who could make things happen very quickly. And again, from a production standpoint, um, because Tracy and Allison had done all this research, we knew who all these people were. Yeah. We knew where the leads were. We knew who these what the stories were that we needed to go after, and the pieces of the puzzle yeah. that we needed to go collect in order to paint a picture for everybody else to understand. Um, so the, the crazy thing is, is that it really only took 18 months. Um, wow. And we, we made that it. That is insane. I felt like you were going to say five years, man. No, no. I mean, I mean, keep in mind, Tracy and Allison had worked on this for yeah. eight years up yeah. until the point. So, but really the production process started just over a year ago. So literally uh, 13, probably 13 months from the, the first time we rolled cameras until now. Um, and it's out now at the end of March in 2021. And, um, and that's certainly a testament to the infrastructure of NBC studios yeah. and, and Peacock. Yeah. That's amazing, brother. And yeah. you know, yeah. what, what was it like, you know, getting to, to learn the story of this kind of notorious monster, but from, so many different lenses, you know, was, was that, I, I imagine it's haunting and it's enlightening and it's oddly inspiring, you know, talk, talk to me about that. So, yeah, the thing that like I'm most excited about is that Allison and Tracy continue their investigation to this day and Allison's website is still active. It's called johnwaynegacynews.com. Yeah. And it's where she, I believe where she initially got this tip that she should look into this, um, this story. And my hope is that through making this series um, and for it being so widely available, yeah. that there are people who may know the answers to some of these questions that will come forward. Yeah. Um, what I found through making it is that there are a lot of... Uh, off the record, fascinating pieces of this story that do need to be told. And I think it's going to take somebody having the courage to uh, to come clean or to be honest about the way things transpired in the past. Speaking could, of like M Michael Rossi, you know, maybe, I yeah. don't know. Like, I mean, there, there's, there are people out there who certainly, um, we, whose names we, we bring up in the series that might know something um, yeah. that, that uh, are, could speak if they wanted to. Um, and not even those people, but just others kind of writ large in the Chicagoland area. Everybody seems like in Chicago 
know somebody that has a connection or an experience or knows something about this, like because Gacy and what he did permeated city news and culture and history. And um, my hope though, is that by making the show and by discovering this and then being able to present it to other people that, 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 that more answers uh, will be, or more questions will be able to be answered. Yeah. And so that's why Allison keeps this website uh, maintained to this day, because maybe somebody will come forward with a tip. Maybe yeah. somebody has that missing photograph. Maybe somebody has that the, an audio tape. Maybe somebody has a first person experience that they can present and uh, and actually write the record. I think that like the, the one of the things that was most important about this series to me was making sure that people who are in charge um, in America don't yeah. get to write history merely because they're in charge. Yeah. And that's what we've seen broadly, uh, like um, with anything, whether it's the treat of, uh, the, the way that Americans have treated Native Americans, civil rights movement, or even, uh, you know, anything really that the, the powerful tell us how things happen. And yeah. just because they were in control doesn't mean that is what they've said is true. And as Americans and just, you know, as like a consumers of stories, it's our, I think it's our responsibility to constantly call into question official narratives. Yeah. Um, again, just because someone has said it's official doesn't mean it is. Yeah. And, uh, and so if as a filmmaker, I can be a part of uh, making sure that things are recorded accurately, that's worth my time. Yeah. Well, you did it so successfully, brother, and it's been so amazing having you on. You have to come back. Obviously, now you know your family at this point, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, dude, this is so crazy, of course. And uh, you know, man, I, I'm I'm so curious. You know, can you talk about you know before I get to my two final questions, what you have upcoming? This is a this is a great question. Like, uh, so I, I thought about like I was I. I, it's, I'm going to pause because I know you can like, well, maybe you can't, this is a video. You can't, you can't. I, no, I can, I can do a little, you know, snip clip, you know? So tell me. As filmmaker, every filmmaker has things that they are dying to make things yeah. that like prod, stories they want to tell projects that they've spent years like um, uh, endeavoring uh, to will into existence. Um, and all these things are boulders that are on hills um, and sometimes the boulders are at the bottom of the hill. Sometimes they get close to the top and they yeah. slide back down. Um, for me, as a, as a filmmaker, like there there are, there are so many things that I would like to make um, and I'm trying to make. I, I told you I sold this uh, film that my friend Bryce and I wrote to Amblin. Yeah. Um, well, the film, uh, after two years, went into turnaround, and which means that like Amblin is not going to make it. Um, and now it's and back the, on the market. Well, the, yeah, the onus is on us, myself and my producing partner, Noah Lang, to um, make the movie. And I, and I think about these uh, these sorts of projects often because every filmmaker has, again, many of these things they want to do. Um, and I have no idea how to actually <laughs> will them into existence. Um, the, the creative process is such that the boulders get bigger and the hills get bigger. Yeah. Um, and as we grow older we have to figure out like what is worth our time. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a dad. Um, yeah. My wife works full time. We moved to Nashville for her career. Yeah. Um, she had followed me around my career for so many years and supported me through all the emotional ups and downs. And after we had our daughter, um, I, I, I thought like, you know what, like 
I need to give her space in our relationship and in our existence to pursue her, her path. Um, and that's meant that life, me, or, you know, that your career meanders a little bit or that you, you know, you, you take a little bit of a detour, but that's not a detour in the sense that um, I'm not doing what I want to be doing or, or yeah. endeavoring to do what I love to do. It's just that I, I needed to give her room to do that. And that's, uh, and, and that took, and, and I'll, I'll, initially I was reluctant and scared because like we're, as artists, we're myopically focused on uh, succeeding or creating these things. And like all of our time and energy goes into that. Well, I, after our daughter was born just over four years ago, I needed to reevaluate and say, how do I be a good parent yeah. while being a good artist and a good spouse? Yeah. And I'm still trying to figure out how to do that. So I have got this film that Amblin is no longer making called The White Room. I would like to make that dearly. Um, I don't know how to make it um, at this point, but I'm I'm trying. I, I spend, you know, probably every available minute try, of my of my work day trying to figure out how to will one of these things into existence. So I, I say this, I talk about this in the abstract because there is no single thing. Yeah. There are many things. Um, and it's just the process of trying to find the right people to work with, um, trying to find that one person that's going to say yes, because as yeah. we know, everybody says no, totally. but all it takes is one yes. Yeah. And, and I remember something that the filmmaker Edward Burns said that like, if you spend at least one moment per day doing something to further a project or an idea or something that you want to be doing and you don't give up on that, that something will eventually happen based on the volume of energy and enthusiasm and passion that you put out into the world. So I'm at that juncture right now. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen next. There's a lot of things I would like to make. Um, I just, I, I'm trying to do it with good people and trying to uh, make sure that those projects are things that have something to say and a reason to say it right now. So beautiful, man. You actually, oddly, just, uh, you, uh, sorry. Oh, cool. All right. I just got a message. I just wanted to make sure everything was good. Uh, she's loving it. Great. Uh, dude, it's so amazing having you on, man. It, it, it's such a ride, man. I mean, I, I, you're coming back. I'm, I'm not even asking. I'm telling you. Um, it, uh, and happy, gonna- happy, happy to talk anytime. Like, I mean, yeah. I think like, I, 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 th- I read about you and what you're doing before we got on this podcast. And I think the read um, about me, how, yeah, just dude, you have a Facebook page, oh, there's an yeah. interview on the yeah. NYU site. Yeah. Um, and, and I, <laughs> I think don't that- think anyone's doing that. You know, I wish, wish on uh, my Bumble days. I was like, yeah, Google me. <laughs> well, the, the thing that I like, I want to say, and like, is that, is that like, is that I see you, dude, and I see I see what you're doing. Where you're taking a, 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 a desire and a set of experiences and a journey, and you're you're adjusting because you're trying to find a way to do what you do and to be a part of a world that you want to be a part of. And dude, that that's that's a beautiful thing, and like and that matters. So and Thank I think you. that like I needed to hear that because I make no money on this thing. You know, dude, and but but you like you're good at it. You connect with people, and I can hear this in the other interviews that you that you've done. I listened to the one with Mark Webber. I listened to the one with Glenn Fleshler, and like, and you see people, and the, and people want to be seen. And I'm saying to you that, dude, I see you and what you're doing, and you and you're you're making a difference, and you're adding something. Thanks, so, man. yeah, thank you for thank I, you for like for doing this. Like, I just I the world needs. The, the world needs to see people more for who they are and what they want to be seen as. And so I just, I'm, I'm here to tell you that. <laughs> I appreciate that more than you could ever imagine, man. You know, it's like, 
doing this podcast is great, but then going to the audition and being like, oh, I just spent eight hours working on a self-tape for a no. You know what I mean? So I, I, I appreciate that, man. You know, Dude, you're finding a way to scratch the itch. You yeah. need to create, you need to like wrestle with this and your relationship to art and process. And like, and this is, it's, it's not a diversion. It's just, you're, you're taking a different path to where you want to get to. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. And I'm that's glad what my you life see it is that. Been. You know what I mean, man? Because like, I try to explain to people like, Oh, well, I'm a host, but I'm an actor. And like, you get it, dude. That means so much to me, man. You know, like the real I people see get you. it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, dude. I'm trying, dude. It's, it's all scheme, bro. It's all I'm just faking it till I make it, you know? Dude, um, th- no, no way. Like you're, dude. you're, you're finding a way to like, to, to be in it. And like, yeah. That, dude, that's that's all that that's literally what my life has been, and that's what I think it, it anybody needs to do, or my my life and my creative journey, and like, and who knows where it will add up to? Maybe we will make a film together. Maybe we'll maybe, and like if that ha- if that comes to be from us being on this yeah. <laughs> this podcast today, like I see it now. In two years, we're gonna be doing one in a press interview together. How'd you guys meet? <laughs> and dude, yeah. that's dude, that is like an incredible thing. That's yeah. a, that's like. That's life, man. And like, that's the magic of our existence, the, you know, in, in a digital era. And like, what a, what a beautiful thing. Dude, so amazing, man. That brings me, which I, I think you've answered, but I'll ask it because it's always the question I ask, you know, what advice would you have for, you know, the young rods out there that maybe don't have a television or an Apple TV or, you know, and live in that small town and go to that, you know, smaller college and, and, don't have parents that are in this and don't get into that fancy school with connections, you know, as someone who's made it happen for themselves, man. And you, you know, even outside of filmmaking, just artists in general, any words of wisdom or advice? Yes. First of all, don't do it unless there's nothing else that you can do or nothing else that you want to do. The, the pro this journey is going to be, pain like the the lows are going to be very low and the highs are going to be very highs and the highs are fleeting um uh but when something good happens learn to recognize it and celebrate it and take time to acknowledge it um in the way that yeah the, the god i'm gonna get him <laughs> no please man i mean the way that it affects you yeah the way that it affects you and like because it, it, it is hard to succeed. And, and of course you define, everybody should define their own or write success in their own terms. Like, and that is like a part of the process, but um, don't do this unless you, you can't imagine doing anything else because it will be far more stressful than not. Um, and uh, also I, like I try to practice what Ira Glass has put so perfectly uh, into something I think that he calls the gap, which is that there will be many times in your life when you were starting out and you were learning who you are and finding your voice where the ideas that you have in your head don't add up when you execute them. They fall into the gap. They fall short. It's like, I want to go there, but I end up crashing here. And that's, that's okay. Like, because one, you can learn from that and you should acknowledge it and you should acknowledge when things don't work and you should not be ashamed of it. You should say like, Hey, I I failed at this, but how can I grow? And eventually, like if you keep trying and even if you keep failing, eventually something will work. And it takes that endless self-belief 
Um, of course, it's irrational at times. That's why I'm saying don't do this unless you can't do anything else. Yeah. But it, it, try, keep yeah. trying. And if you see growth and if you see things getting better and you see your work getting better and yourself growing as an artist, then you are on a good path and keep believing in yourself because eventually somebody else will, will find that same belief in you that you already know you have. And, um, and that, that, that's, that's the process, man. Dude, I, I can't think of a better way to end it, man. Rod Blackhurst. So much love, brother. Thank you for coming on, man. dude. Dude. Thank you. If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.